Hi, and welcome to another episode of Gomology, a podcast about clothes and stuff. My guest today is Gary Newbold from Yorkshire, I believe. Now, would you like to introduce yourself, Gary? Yes, hi, everybody. My name's Gary Newbold, and um, I'm the owner of a UK brand of coat makers called English Utopia. And uh, Nick contacted me recently um, so that we could do this podcast, and hopefully I'll be able to talk to you a little bit, Nick, about um, my experiences with the brand and the things I was doing before that. Yes, because you are pretty much what I'd say an outerwear specialist, but your way from nothing to becoming that hasn't been as straightforward as many, I think. That's fair to say, yeah. Certainly not the, um, if you like, the normal sort of fashion college route. I don't think I've ever been inside of fashion college. Um, not that I see that as a great advantage by any means. I'm not trying to say that, but uh, certainly the route I've taken has been a very different one. So where did your adventure start? It was probably, um, because I am rather ancient, um, way back in the late 80s, I'd, I'd been living in France for some 10 years and um, I was a professional racing cyclist. And when I came back to the UK, like like many sports people when they retire from their sport you're you're faced with this awful dilemma of not being sure what to do next and um i was a guy that had left school at 16 with no qualifications and there i was at 28 29 years of old of age and i could do two things i could pedal a bicycle and speak french and <laughs> it's quite hard to match those that particular skill set with a job um so the only route that seemed obvious at the time was that my coach owned a knitwear business in Leicester. And if you know anything about Leicester in the UK, it's one of the centres of the knitwear industry. And so I went to work for him. And um, before very long, I, I found out two things. One was that I hated the selling side. And the second one was that I loved the design side. And Frankly, that's where it all kicked off from that point. What was it about the selling that you didn't like? It's a good or question. This, or, or is this a case of either you like selling or you like making? I think it's quite – selling, I suspect for many people, it, it, it's quite a um, – it involves a lot of conflict in terms of you're going and saying, look at this, isn't it wonderful? And they're saying, no, it isn't. Why should I buy it? And uh, I've never been particularly fond of conflict in any shape or form. And I didn't really enjoy that adversarial, um, despite having been competitive on a bicycle for 10 years, I I didn't like being in that position with a suitcase full of samples. And my my innermost feelings were always, well, look, I'm not going to argue with you. If you don't want to buy it, I'll just go. <laughs> That's quite strange, really, because you know what the competitive side of cycling would have set you up as a competitive salesman as well. Yeah, I was hopeless, Nick. I was absolutely hopeless. Uh, and sometimes that could work in your favour because, uh, as you know, often people quite like being sold to by an, an, an un-salesman-like approach. So it occasionally worked but I didn't really enjoy it. And then as soon as I was back in the factory and talking about fabric and colour and design and, and the technical side, I thought, yeah, this is this is what I like doing. This is where I feel like I belong. So were you given an opportunity to look at that side of things? Not in any official capacity. It was, um, I mean, you know, we're talking in the late 80s. Things were perhaps 30, 40 years ago less structured, less strategic, less corporate, dare I say. And uh, it was pretty much, um, oh, um, what colour do you think this style will look good in? Or um, um, what, what, um, what other alternatives could we offer to the customer in terms of design, do you think? And it was very, very sort of, you know, just on a 
it wasn't even in a, a, a capacity as a, a particular job title. It was just, what do you think? And um, the more I was given that opportunity to express my, my thoughts, which frankly I didn't know I possessed. I mean, I didn't know I knew anything or had any penchant for color or style. Um, it amazed me. And the, mo the more I got into that, the more they, they, they trusted me. And um, yeah, it, it evolved in that way. Sounds like the other people at the factory might not have had much of an idea either. It was a typical um, manufacturing plant. Um, I, I don't think, um, compared with perhaps France and Italy, we've ever been what I might describe as design-led businesses in, in our manufacturing in this country. It's always been... Um, we're the factory, uh, designers come in from the outside that work for different brands, different companies, and use your facilities to make what they want. But um, often for a, a manufacturer to, to be design-led, at least in my experience, it has been rare. So you, meet, you have a lot of people that know how to make things backwards, forwards, every which way you can imagine. Um, you know, they, they have an in-depth knowledge of how to make things and all the machinery that goes with it, but um, certainly not design-led. Mm, sounds like more engineering-led. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it was um, you know, the old-fashioned sort of, we need to make this many in a week to break even, and we need to make this many in a week to make a profit. How are we going to do that? And it was a numbers game before we even used to use the term numbers game. And young Gary has to be out and selling this many this week. Yeah, it Otherwise. was a bit like that. <laughs> yeah. So where did you go on from there? You clearly didn't last long there. No. Um, the the guy I worked for had been um, a sort of mentor and coach from the age of about 15, 16 for me. And um, – by the time I was in my late 20s, I think I'd changed a lot and um, we, we didn't see eye to eye on things and we, we fell out. And I just thought, well, now I'm in this industry, I like it, what's next? And uh, the step I took after that was, God knows how I, or why I thought this now, I can't even remember, but I went to um, – a fashion exhibition in Paris. It doesn't exist anymore. It was called SEM. I don't know whether you remember that. No. Salon des Expositions Hommes. And I can only think the M was masculine, but I can't remember. Um, and I went there with the express intention of uh, looking to talk to British brands and to try and introduce their brand into France. I was so naive, you know, it didn't even cross my mind that they may well have an agent already. <laughs> so as I was looking around the exhibition, um, I thought actually the opposite might be easier to look for nice French brands and try and introduce them to the UK market. Now, my thinking was a little bit confusing at the time, of course, because that involved more selling. <laughs> Um, but you know, I was, I was clutching at straws. I didn't know what I was going to do. Um, I was, although I'd had that year of experience with my, my old coach, um, it was still difficult to know how to get a foothold in anything. Um, so that's why I, I went, took myself off and actually succeeded in finding one or two really nice little French brands, and this will tie into this to later on into when we get to talk about what I did later on. Um, so I came back from France. Um, I had two or three little agencies, and uh, that grew into having about nine different companies I represented in the UK as their agent. And so suddenly I was thrown back into selling stuff. But it was kind of different in a way. I mean, it was it was very um, – the products were wide and varied. And if anything, I was inadvertently getting a, a deeper product knowledge 
although I didn't realize it at the time. And most of all, it, it provided an income. Well, it sounds like representing nine companies should be quite the portfolio. It was good. Yeah, it was, and, you know, I met some nice people. I enjoyed traveling around, seeing the different retailers, and I didn't have that sort of pressure that I'd felt before. Um, and uh, I enjoyed it. I, I almost hesitate to ask what went wrong. <laughs> There's always something. One of the companies I worked for, um, it, it was uh, an interesting one, uh, and I think it's probably best that we keep names out of it. Um, I, I, I said to my then partner, you know something, I don't really feel like I'm being paid the the commission I'm owed from this work. I, I, I'm sure I'm selling more than that, and the customers are reordering, and I'm not being told about this. Um, to cut a long story short, we managed to um, get um, – a court order to force them to open their accounts and we we found out that we were owed about 90,000 pounds and um I thought I was owed about 20 um you can imagine the shock um we we settled out of court for a sum not far off the money I was owed um that of course meant that I wasn't exactly going to work for them anymore <laughs> And um, I sat there with my girlfriend and said, well, um, we can do two things here. We can buy a house, but then I'm not quite sure I'm go- what I'm going to do. Carry on with the other agencies, but, you know, that they weren't the main breadwinner of the agencies, but the one I just lost was. Or um, I fancy... Um, Plowing the money, and I've just the money I've just been awarded into perhaps starting my own small manufacturing plant. Without knowing anything about manufacturing, or anything about design, or anything about anything, so they were my two choices, and I, I'm, I've no idea how that might, how ridiculously naive that must sound to some of your listeners, but. Um, I decided to invest the money in a small manufacturing unit rather than do the sensible thing and buy a house Mm. on the premise probably that life's too short to be sensible. So what did you start manufacturing? Um, Well, basically, um, what I um, had learned in the preceding few years was I I, I self-taught in pattern making. So I felt quite confident in being able to um, think up um, a, a style of jacket or coat, um, probably a bit rough around the edges, but um, with a lot of help from very good and experienced machinists, which sort of fine-tuned my pattern making over a few years. And so we were, I started making um, jackets and coats, not so dissimilar to the ones that I make now. And, um, right, so we're talking sort of country-style British... Yeah, that's right, tweed coats, yep. wax coats. And um, it, uh, that, was, that was in about 1995 that we started to do that, and that lasted for a good five years. What was your brand name at the time? My middle name is William, and... Um, at the time, I thought it was a rather nice idea to call the brand William Newbold in with some sort of idea that it probably sounds old-fashioned and authentic. Uh, so we were, we were called William Newbold, and um, that's how that was the label in the garment. And did you take over the world of country fashion with with the company? Took over the world in my street. <laughs> <laughs> Is that what's called a limited success? Yeah, I think so, yeah. If somebody once said to me, you were going to set the world alight, but your matches got damp. So, oh. <laughs> um, no, I, I mean, I was ridiculously naive. Uh, I, I mean, talk about jumping off a cliff. Um, at, at the time, I felt like I, I, was, I was doing the right thing. I got customers. I got people that wanted to buy from me. Um, 
it's only in hindsight that you know frankly if i if i knew then what i know now i i never would have started it but isn't it true that so many people say that well that's the problem with hindsight isn't it yeah yeah what you knew then that's right and conceptually had conceptually we had some good ideas i mean um I had um, a retail front in the middle of York, and the idea was that we'd put um, a transparent wall halfway down the store, rather in the same way that restaurants decided to open up their kitchens and let people see what was going on. That 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 seemed to happen a few years ago. Well, we were doing the same with coat making, and um, you could walk in the front door and you could um, see the product being made on the machines out the back. Um, conceptually a great idea, but I, I think I needed more financial acumen and a bit more experience in business to actually make it stick. Mm. It's a big leap, though, going into um, a complete manufacturing company. Yeah. Yeah, I suppose. Um, as I say, when I look back, you know, well, why the hell, what on earth made me decide to do that? Uh, I mean, I had lots of energy and lots of help and um i think it was i i don't know i could take a lot on at the time i think i was happy to work all hours and um didn't phase me that, that lack of experience didn't phase me certainly at the time but um and it could have worked you know i, I don't know i i suppose that if i tried that now i think i'd have, i'd probably know I mean, I'm not going to open a retail store now, I don't think, but um, I think if I did the same again, I'd at least get further than I did, just through being it's a little clued up, you know. It does sound like it gave you some valuable experience, though. Totally, yeah, it did. Um, and I think um, what happened after that um, wouldn't have happened, Nick, without that without that five years of, uh, ste- of a steep learning curve. Because the company you had started, William Newbold, yeah. didn't last. No. By, um, a quick, quick, quick story about that is that um, three, year, in, three years into the five years that it survived, we, um, we were approached by um, a traditional Yorkshire woolen mill um, from West Yorkshire, and they invested in us, which I thought was all rather marvellous. And um, within two years, they sold their business, and we met the new owners, and the new owners wanted to um, concentrate on their core business of weaving and didn't really want to um, prolong their interest in finished goods um i I, at the time wondered what the implications were for me and whilst it's a bit more complicated this the the simple version is that um although they'd invested in us thus far they didn't want their money back they were prepared to write it off well that was nice of them yeah and i remember thinking to myself as the guys were telling me around this round table in an account in an accountant's meeting room well, it's a good job that you want to write it off because I haven't got it anyway to give you back. <laughs> Naturally. <laughs> you know, because you invested in me. Guess what I did with the money? I invested it in fabric, in, you know, machinery. Um, the, the, the reality was that we couldn't continue with our endeavours without further financial support. We'd, um, we'd laid ourselves out and exposed ourselves to um, a certain level of uh, manufacturing capacity, and we couldn't sustain it without their continued support. So we um, wound up the business. But, uh, yeah, as you said, I I learned a lot during that time. So what happened next? You were out on the street again. Yeah, I thought that I'd pretty much um, reached the end of my... uh, years in the clothing business it felt like that um 
that had been now 10 years and um i just remember deciding to go and rent an allotment from the local council and i was digging away one day thinking well what the hell am i going to do now but i didn't use the word hell i use another word uh, <laughs> right you know um and frankly i was at a loss and the phone rang uh, enter the enter the beginning of mobile phones we had already got a mobile phone in 1999 you know and um it was the sales director from barber on the phone a chap called ian Beatty, who i'd met frank just through simply being in the trade and bumping into him at exhibitions, blah, blah, blah. And he liked my brand. So um, I, I've always been one for a bit of a daft off the cuff comment. And he said to me, um, sorry to hear about William Newbold. Um, what are you doing now? And I said, uh, digging up potatoes. <laughs> <laughs> he said, no, you fool. <laughs> What are you doing? And so well, I'm literally doing that. But actually, in terms of what's on the horizon for me, that's actually all I am doing and all I can foresee doing at the moment. And he said, you ought to come and talk to us. Um, Mrs. Well, Dame Margaret, she was Mrs. Barber then, but Dame Bar Margaret Barber now. Dame Margaret had, uh, I didn't know, she'd, um, she had one of my jackets or I think her her son had got one or something like that. And she'd been in a meeting at Barber. They'd had a few difficult years from about 1995 to the, to the millennium. And um, apparently this jacket had turned up in a meeting at Barber and she'd said, this is the sort of thing we should be doing. And it was my jacket. Um, and the sales director that called me, he said, oh, I know that guy. Um, why don't I call him? And that was the beginning of my relationship with Barber, late 1999. Clearly one of those small world moments. It was. It was amazing, you know. And um, so I went up to see them, and uh, to that point in time i'd never ever used the word designer about myself um i still don't very often but it's a name that's given to you um so i went to see them and um the chat was very much along those lines that we liked the brand and um we liked the way you were doing things um and then dame margaret and the ceo who is still the ceo uh, Steve Book, they said, well, we, we've never employed a designer before. <laughs> and uh, under my breath, I was thinking, no, and you're not about to. <laughs> <laughs> I decided to remain composed and professional and uh, accepted the title gracefully and, and said, um, they said, would you be interested? And I said, yeah, I... I, I, I <laughs> I wanted to say, you bet I'd be interested. Uh, of course I was, but I, I was trying to play it cool. Let me think about it, you know. <laughs> Do I really want to work for the leading outerwear, British outerwear brand in country clothing and related? Uh, and the alternative is digging my allotment. Uh, I think I might say yes. Did those potatoes dig themselves out of the ground? <laughs> Well, within a few short months, you did I, have commitments. I had an allotment, yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, so, yeah, I, I went to see them four or five times to talk about my role and this, that, and the other. Um, and by, <clears throat> yeah, by May 2000, I was given this um, grand title of Head of Design for Barber. Am I right in thinking that this might have been the sort of breaking point when Barber went from being 
a sort of traditional wax jacket, oilskin farmer's jacket type company and moving more into the design world. Yeah, it is. Absolutely it is. Yeah. And um, the, um, the the CEO, Steve Book, had joined the company six months before, before me and he recognised immediately that um, – the positives were the enormous affection that people have for the brand globally. Um, on the negative side at that time, they had virtually no product to offer. Um, the, their export sales director, Jeff Shepard, used to tell this wonderful story um, in the 90s where he once went over to um, Paris with um, the new collection to show the French agents. So he sat them all down in that rather beautiful showroom just off the Champs-Élysées. And um, he came into the room and there was one mannequin standing uh, next to the table with a, with a blanket draped over it. And um, so after a short introduction, he said, so for 1999-2000, I present to you the Barber Beaufort jacket, which, as many of your listeners will know, is their best-selling jacket, we present to you the Barber Beaufort in black. <laughs> <laughs> With the accompanying drum roll, I think. Uh, <laughs> and, and that was their level. Uh, and, you know, I'm not criticizing them. They're a very successful company and who wouldn't want to be successful on making one product in the same color all the time manufacturer's dream um but certainly uh to, to grow the brand it it was necessary to broaden their product offer to a ready and willing market and and that's that's exactly what we did we rapidly expanded the product line from oh, 10 to 20 units to probably 200 within three or four years that was across jackets coats knitwear pants you name it the the idea and thinking at the time was that barber wanted to dress the dress the person and fill their wardrobe with whatever that might be i suppose barber became a sort of lifestyle brand at the time then offering sort of everything you needed to lead the barber lifestyle it's very interesting because um Certainly, mainland Europe re- regarded Barber as a lifestyle brand already. Uh, in in Britain, it was very much still a hunting, shooting, fishing brand. Um, there'd been a blip way back in the 80s in, in um, the, the yuppie culture of the time that it became quite cool to wear a Barber, but that was very short-lived. Was that the Sloan, Sloan Ranger, Princess Di? Uh, That's right. Period. Yeah. yeah. Um, but the, the, the difference between the UK and mainland Europe was that it was predominantly seen as a lifestyle brand in mainland Europe. And it was actually seen more as a, a luxury brand in Scandinavia, in Germany, in France. Um, often their products were found in very high-end stores, boutiques. And it hadn't achieved at that time in Britain, probably never really did, that sort of luxury brand status that it enjoyed certainly in Germany and Scandinavia. That's really quite remarkable because before the millennium, the the range of barber jackets must have been pretty small. Yeah, yeah. It was. I mean, you know, they don't have the numbers, but I imagine that um, more than 80% of their sales were probably attributable to three styles in two colours. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, quite an amazing business. So what you brought into it then was a, a huge diversification of yeah, not only styles but also what sort of items you could buy. I, I think I was very lucky as their first designer in that um, it was a blank canvas and I, I can't claim that um, everything I designed was a fantastic runaway success um i might even look back at some of those early designs now and think why the hell did i do that but you were 
you were kicking against an open door. You know, you had retailers the world over that were begging for more product. And um, if I sort of compare that with perhaps a designer joining Barber now, it would be a, a much harder proposition, I think, now because there is a wide product base. They've got a multitude of different collections, and um, it, it's a far more complex business than the one I joined. How was the manufacturing at that time? Was it all in the South Shields factory, or had yeah. they started yeah. offshoring? So, yeah, the, the, the jackets uh, were all made there at that time. Um, I, th- I think they got one non-wax cotton um, product which wasn't made there but um, and, and as far as I know I, I don't actually I'm not 100% certain but I think all of the wax jackets are still made there only the three classic models are still made there as far as I know oh okay yeah your, your information is better than mine Nick yeah and I mean they make thousands of them every week because there is an immense amounts, but it's just the three because I was looking at the range uh, just recently and I saw they had was it 75 different men's jacket styles. Good God. 75. Yeah. And a, about the same for women yeah. and then all the other products. So it's a, a huge array now. Yeah. So w- when you started redesigning the jackets, did you, was it sort of a move away from practical into more fashionable styles or was it variations, would you say? My thinking at the time was that I wanted to um, I wanted to somehow add something to the I, I like the idea that the brand was seen as a luxury brand in uh, places like as I mentioned before, Scandinavia, Germany, Italy, Italy etc. And if anything, I thought the core product was a little bit crude. But who am I to um, say that or want to change that? Because it sold very, very well. And so I had to be very careful about how I handled that. But I, I wanted to, you know, improve raw material content, um, occasionally um, the way in which something might be made, just just to give it a little bit of extra pizzazz, a little bit, a bit more finesse. Um, And so the way that we approached that was to leave the core product alone and then to add pretty nice pieces of kit around that, you know, um, beautiful wool tweed jackets and um, soft cashmere knitwear and, um, it, it it certainly felt like that's where I wanted. I mean, it wasn't just about me. I obviously had CEO, sales directors, and other people that were um, equally vociferous in the way they saw things developing. But um, I, w- I was left alone to develop product in the way I saw fit. Um, and if I went too far, they just said, no, we're not going to do that. Um, but it was really to um, take it to the next level in terms of um, how the market perceived the brand. And I wanted it, to, I just wanted us to have really, really nice, high quality things. If the European market liked the previous product, they must have been like sponges for this. Yeah, the, um, we, we immediately um, saw that. I mean, Barber had, the sales had declined. I mean, it's no secret it was in the press and everything, so I'm not giving away any trade secrets, but Barber sales had declined from the mid-90s um, to the millennium, hence the reason why there was a new CEO and um, ne- the, the need to adopt a different strategy. Um, and And so, yeah, when we started to offer an expanded product line, we noticed that sales started to rise again. And uh, from that low point of 1999, I think they've risen every year ever since. I I don't know about the last few years because I've not been 
party to that, but um, certainly in the time I was there, um, as a as a unit, as a team, all contributing different things, we managed to. Um, I think we managed to double the sales in five years or something. So yeah, it was a good time. Thinking back to your designs of the time, what would have been your finest moment and possibly worst moments? <laughs> um, I, I don't know why. I suppose we can always remember our bad things more than our good things, but I remember designing this um, endurance riding jacket, a uh, three-quarter length riding coat with a, lo- with a large split in the back. And uh, uh, I'd, I'd taken advice from um, people that are involved in that sort of activity. I didn't really know anything about it before. And um, so the jacket was designed, accepted in product development meetings, and it was in the collection, and some were sold. When the thing was delivered, the um, we realized – I conveniently use the word we because it spreads the blame when really I mean I. <laughs> <laughs> um, I I'd chosen the, the fabric that came through for production was far shinier than the sample fabric that we'd, we'd used in the first place and far stretchier. Now, most of your listeners will know about, including yourself, will know about a small lycra content in in all sorts of fabrics to give it a little bit of ease however one can take that too far (laughs) you don't really want to use your item of clothing as a catapult (laughs) you've got so much stretch in it so the my my low point was the the endurance riding jacket which which was just so shiny and so stretchy god knows whatever happened to those jackets they were a disaster um, <laughs> and I, I think that um, high points were perhaps um, a, a four-pocket women's wax jacket, which was totally plagiarised. That's a better word, isn't it? Inspired by? <laughs> Inspired by. Thank you, Nick. <laughs> <laughs> um, um one of the mainstream stores might have been H and M. Can't remember, and it was just a really nice fitting um, uh, four pocket biker jacket for women. And uh, so we made a wax cotton version of it. Um, this would have been two thousand and two, two thousand and three. Put it in the collection. I don't know what they call it these days, but it's been one of their best selling wax jackets for women for years i think they're huge today it's the sort of international range i think yeah it'll be one of those jackets in that range i think you know and it's quite funny because even now i sort of nostalgia or whatever it is i occasionally wander into a barber store just to look and of course there's a great many styles in there that have had nothing to do with me and that are nice and that i like but it, just occasionally I see one on the shelf and think, oh, yeah, I remember doing that. <laughs> it's quite nice. That's remarkable, really. That I mean, their styles do tend to be quite enduring unless they are total, totally fashion-based. Yeah. And, of course, with about 150 different jackets in the range today, some must be old and some must be new, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. Were, were there any collaborations when you were – working there or was that something that came yeah, in later that, that came after me um I, I think that I don't, I don't know for sure that barber were pioneers in that whole way of doing things I, I don't think they were i think there were other brands doing it before them um but certainly when i was there we we weren't we weren't doing anything like that I, I, if my memory serves me right, they started doing that in around, I think, 2007, 2008, something like that. Well, would that have been the Takito? Uh... Yeah. That's right. I think he was the first. 
And, um, you know, maybe I'm outspoken. I get it to a certain degree. Um, I'm fundamentally not somebody that supports that way of doing things. It, I, I personally always felt that Barber is a strong enough brand in its own right to not to have to do that. Um, but, you know, I'm, I don't see myself as a strategic business guy and there are other people who see things differently to me and, and, and can see the benefit in doing it. Um, personally, it's not a route that I, don't, I think I would ever go down. I don't I think it's a definitely a mixed bag. Yeah. Um, yeah. Some of the collaborations Barbara have done have been really good. Yeah. And others have been, well, it looked like they were cashing in on, say, the Bond success. Yeah. Steve and Steve others have been sort of purely uh, business collaborations like making Range Rover models and the like. Yeah. Yeah, I think when when collaborating with actual designers, though, they have made some good things, like with the Tokito one and uh, the Patrick Grant Norton and Sons yeah. collection. It's, as a design, as a designer, though, I can see why you wouldn't sort of be too keen on another designer coming in. Yeah, I mean, I, in a way, it wouldn't have bothered me. I, I mean, if, if I could see the commercial benefits from doing it, um, then for sure, it, it, I. I don't think I was ever too precious about that sort of thing. Um, it, what I questioned sometimes was, was whether whether it was really going to make any difference to to their sales, and um, I think that they, they could have often done some of these things without using. Um, a, I mean, you know, okay, so you needed you needed that design input from somewhere. But I'm not always entirely. I mean, often you know, um, they they've collaborated with people where they've still done the design work themselves, so they're more than capable of doing it. I mean, there's some even to this day there are some fantastic individuals that work in that company that, that can do the design certainly. So uh, I suppose at the end of the day, it comes down to what sort of collaboration there is. I mean, what is the design input? Was it actually? Yeah. real design input or just pick a color i think usually it's just the the you know the, the the name sells doesn't it i mean you know if you if you've got a two wax jackets on the shelf and one's an english utopia wax jacket from me and the other one's a wax jacket uh, designed by paul smith well it's usually going to be the paul smith jacket that people pick up because it's they've heard of him it's well known and um you know so it's, name is, as you know, it's a very powerful thing. Even if even if my jacket might be better, it's... <laughs> well, it depends whether you like Paul Smith or not. Well, there or, is or that. Or whether you yeah. like James Bond. <laughs> yeah, exactly, yeah. So moving on then from the barber point of view, yeah. you were there for a few years. Yeah, six years. And then you decided, nah, back to the potatoes. I think um, I was anybody that knows me would they were quite frankly amazed that I managed to plant myself in a corporate environment for that long. I think most of my friends probably gave me six days <laughs> <laughs> so six years was a fine effort really um, and um it, it, it's actually quite interesting that you discover a lot about yourself. Um, working in that position in a company like that and I realized that I did struggle with the whole corporate way of the world um, you know it was a hard lesson to learn that it's not just about creating great product and nice designs there are a whole host of other reasons why um, product either gets to market or doesn't get to market and um, it, it just, the way the brand was developing, I think I'd, I'd served my useful time there. I think um, they couldn't get any more out of me and I couldn't get any more out of them. Um, so it was quite a pleasant 
experience. Um, I had a long chat with Steve Book, the CEO, and said, look, you know, I, I think that it's limited in terms of how enthusiastic I can be and want to be, and I think I need to just go on and do something else. Um, so I think from um, the moment I thought I wanted to leave to the moment I resigned was about 24 hours, wow. <laughs> impetuous as ever. But I knew, I just, I knew I, I didn't need to spend weeks anguishing and deliberating over it. I just knew that it was right to leave. And of course, having to spend another three to six months hanging around then is just pure pain for both parties. Absolutely. Yeah, it, it, absolutely. And, um, you know, it's, um, I wasn't too popular at home when I got back and announced that I'd just given up a quite nicely paid job as head of design at Barber. We just bought a house and had two children under the age of two. So you can imagine how popular I was. Yeah. so what was your grand plan then to get a new allotment or did you have anything um well over the six years i was there and i was sort of their head of design which is quite a funny title because there wasn't another there there was no body (laughs) the head of design was the body of design as well um so I thought that, well, one thing I might try and do is um, to see whether I couldn't be head of design for another brand. And um, I, had, I had two or three interviews. And obviously, if your CV says head of design barber, you are going to get a few doors open for you. And um, I think I went for half a dozen interviews and got rejections. And I found that really demoralizing and sort of undermined my confidence. And um, so when I realized that looked like it wasn't going to happen, um, I, well, I, I, in a similar way, I got the phone call from somebody at Barber when I was working on the allotment before I got a call from a guy who asked me if I wanted to do some freelance work for him. And um, as soon as word was out there that I'd left Barbara, I, I, I got offers of half a dozen different freelance contracts in a very short space of time. Um, and I think within six months, I was as busy as anything, busy as ever, you know, working for um, four or five different brands. Were they brands that were similar to Barber? Uh, yeah. Um, I, I did freelance work. They were all um, very old-fashioned heritage UK brands. Um, one was a 200-year-old fishing company in London. Um, another one was a, <laughs> a 200-year-old gunmaker in Birmingham who was uh, wanting to and still does make very very high end clothing for its elite clientele. Um, the most interesting contract I got was from um, the oldest ski brand in the world in Austria, a ski brand called um, Kneisel. And anyone who knows about skiing of a certain age will over a certain age will know about Kneisel skis. I used to have a pair. Oh, wow. <laughs> well, they were a very interesting company because um, they wanted the, – the, their CEO um, basically said, we've got designers in Austria, um, but we don't want to use a ski wear designer because we just feel, rightly or wrongly, that if we use a ski wear designer, we'll get products that look like ski wear. And I was, like, saying uh, – isn't that the idea? <laughs> yeah. And he said, well, you know what I mean? We just want it to be done differently. Um, we want it to be high end. We want it to be luxury fabrics. As far as possible, we want our ski wear to be um, made from natural fiber, blah, blah, blah. 
and we we quite like the idea that the person designing our ski collection is the ex head we design for Barber. It's a brand that we care about, and we would like some of that influence in what we do. So um, I I spent five wonderful years working with them. I had a wonderful time, and um, they were eventually. Um, sold themselves and now um it's quite sad but they are they've gone back to just making skis and nothing else but um i met them just pre-lockdown in london and they're talking about now wanting to resurrect the clothing again so i'm, I'm waiting to see i mean I, i'd do it for them again as well but i'm waiting to with bated breath there to see what happens so was that sort of like barber for skiing or was it after yeah. ski year where? It was, um, I mean, the, the biggest difference was that we were using uh, natural fibers, various cotton mixes, um, cashmere, and we were finding technical ways to incorporate them into making ski clothing. And um, it, it, fitted their, it fitted their brand very, very well and, it, it, it began to it took off really well in the early stages and they opened a, a fine store in the middle of Innsbruck where you could see this clothing and uh, and they ran into financial difficulties in about 2011 and so the whole thing collapsed like a pack of cards um, but yes I'm, I'm very fond of my Austrian years when I look back Sounds fantastic. Yeah, and, and and the nice thing about that, Nick, was that um, you know my pre-Barbara experience, my barber years, and then this um, new way of making jackets and learning about what's involved in ski clothing. All of those elements then, of course, help me now. I mean, there are certain things in, in that you'll see in my collection now that are very directly an influence of those uh, ski wear years. Which brings us neatly round to exactly what your personal project is now yes. nowadays. Almost like we've scripted it, isn't it? <laughs> it is, yeah. Because <laughs> your company nowadays is English Utopia, which, yes. as I gather, is a fairly small company yep. in Yorkshire. Yes. And you're very hands-on involved yourself. Yeah, yeah. We've been um, the the brand has existed for eight years now, and um, the early years were basically we were what I call very much a spreadsheet brand in that we could design. I would design the collection, um, choose the fabric, throw it all into a spreadsheet, and send it to a factory in wherever Lithuania, China and say, this is what I want, can you make it? And that's how it worked. Um, that model is fraught with difficulties for a small com company, usually associated with the um, crippling problems around minimum quantities, both in fabric and, and finished goods. And it was killing me. It was killing me financially, and it was killing me physically as well. And there was something innately dissatisfying about it um and it took me a long time to realize what that was and what that was was simply that i'd gone away from those very satisfying core, core skills of um designing making patterns cutting fabric um and so two years ago um i decided for better or for worse, that what I wanted to do was be making very high-end product from the best raw materials I could lay my hands on and to be making it ourselves here in York with our own patterns, cut on our own cutting table, sewn by our own, our own machinists. And therein lies the path of madness because you're never going to be rich doing that. <laughs> but... Um, it, it, it's the the best thing I ever did, and uh, I'm the happiest I've ever been in terms of what I do for a living. I love coming to work every day, 
and and that hands-on feeling of seeing a finished product that is hours from beginning to end is extremely satisfying. It's very interesting how you came to that uh, revelation because I get the impression that the business model you call the spreadsheet uh, or the production model you call the spreadsheet model is sort of increasingly common these days. There's lots and lots of tiny companies with no manufacturing capabilities of their own. Yeah. You're right. Yeah, you're right. But I mean, it was for me, though, it was crazy because I could design, I can pattern make, and I can cut fabric. And, you know, there, 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 are, there are three things there that cost a four. If you're setting up a business and you want to start a brand and you have to pay for design input, get your patterns made, and then someone to cut the stuff out, I mean, you know, you've probably written off £100,000 straight away if, you, if you're trying to build a business model to sell to somebody. And, of course, these are things that I do, and it was crazy not to be using them. Mm. Um, so that's really – it was really pandering to what I, could, what I do best, really. <laughs> I, I don't, I'm not a great guy sitting around a – Sitting around a boardroom table with a spreadsheet is not really what I'm good at. And of course, with English Utopia, I think you're back to where you started with jackets. Yeah, yeah, it's, which it's, is your thing. Yeah, yeah, it's um, it's a very simple business model. We have a website. We put what we hope is some nice kit out there. Um, an order comes in and. Uh, basically immediately contact the customer and say thanks for your order we see you're a size large um have you any preference on length or sleeve length or anything like that or shall we make our standard um get the fabric um we 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 take advantage of um stock service fabrics from a lot of our suppliers as well so that that affords us the ability to offer for example, a tweed jacket in 150 different tweeds or a wax jacket in 20 different colours. And sometimes people might think, my God, they must have some inventory to back that offer. (laughs) Uh, We actually don't. Um, The 20 colours that we offer in our wax jackets um, are all wax cotton fabrics available as a stock service from our main supplier. Similarly, tweeds, you know. Yeah, because, I mean, there are an immense amount of different fabrics out there if you just have access to them. Yeah, yeah. So um, I, I, I wouldn't say I'm any great visionary about what the future holds at all. I wouldn't have a clue, but um, I do feel that this sort of artisanal, local way of producing um, is something that people are increasingly drawn to. And you know uh, we're not setting the world alight but our sales are growing we are getting we're getting more known we have a healthy usa wholesale business we supply 20 25 different usa stores um and then even during the the pandemic um well i say even during the pandemic pandemic certainly we've noticed more and more people looking online even if they don't buy but our um our, our numbers of people visiting the website are more than double what they were. And we've seen about 50% growth in online sales over the same period. It's very encouraging when you say that small artisanal companies are doing better because I have seen a lot of talk about how it seems like they all hope they're going to do better. Yeah. To actually hear someone confirming that this is so is very encouraging. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, um, I, I'm you know, learning. I'm, I'm in my late fifties now, and learning the lessons of a lifetime. Um, I'm keeping my overheads low and um, making sure that uh, what goes out the door is absolutely one hundred percent top quality. And um, the, I'll give you a, a funny little. Um, Thing to we're probably getting towards the end but um i remember when i was a cyclist one of my old coaches i walked into his office in paris 
and there was a sign on the back of his door and it said if you want to win money you won't win races if you want to win races you might win some money and it, it you might think why is that why the hell is he telling me that but with my jackets and coats i want to make the best pro- the best products i can make and with that mentality i might make some money out of it but if i just go into this thinking oh yeah let's do we need 400 a week and then we'll make a 17.4% margin and blah 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 um that's not what i'm doing i mean obviously i need to make money i need to live like everybody but the 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 essence of what i'm doing here is to produce great products from the world's finest fabrics and then i think that i have to take play the long game and hope that that's what people will appreciate. That does ring very true. Now, I think you also have a focus on uh, the sustainability and and environmental aspects of the fabrics you use. Yes. Yeah. Um, It's a tricky one because everybody and his dog these days likes to write sustainable on their website or eco-friendly fabric. Um, So, um, even the raw material supplies, most of what they offer would, would fit that bill now. So uh, what does one mean when one's making these claims? Um, what's different to what everybody else is saying anyway? Um, it, it's increasingly harder to say that about fabrics and raw materials because most of them are, as I say, um, what about carbon footprint? The miles, the amount of miles it takes to make your product and get it to market, is it significantly less than it otherwise would have been in the old days when you were flying it in from the Far East um, and, you know, crazy things where you'd fly a raw material from Europe to the Far East to be added to the product to fly it back to Europe, you know, and things like that. So... We we think we've got some claim to say that um, our brand is is low in terms of its mileage per product. Can I call it that? You know, carbon footprint per product is quite low. Uh, and then where we're using fabrics that sometimes can be questioned, like down, for example. Uh, when we use down in our jackets, we like to know how the down has been farmed, uh, where it's from, uh, has it been done ethically, um, and um, is it possible to trace for the end user, not just me, but could the end user trace the origins of that down? And the answer is yes. So um, a quick look through our website, you will often see that we're very open about the names of our suppliers. And I, I think especially when people are spending upwards of four and five hundred pounds on a product, they have a right to know. I don't want to, you know, if I'm asking somebody to spend six or seven hundred pounds on a jacket, it's for a reason that isn't just about making a huge pot of money. It's because we're using the best raw materials and I think people need to know where they're from. Would it be right to say that you're making the best possible jackets and charging what it costs you to make them instead of chasing every little penny you can eke off yeah. the, the cost price? Yeah. I mean, any any, any listener that's listening in that has a, a business of their own will, will largely know that you want to hopefully be making an operating profit of anything between 30 and 50% and to make a net profit at the end of year, anything between 10 and 15%. And we are no different in our business model to millions of businesses across the planet that, that work like that. You know, there's this sort of tendency when, when you see a product that's for sale at nearly a thousand pounds, people think, good God, he must be making a fortune, (laughs) you know, that I'm making something like 60% net profit or something. But as you say, that's not how it works. The best raw materials, you know, give you an example. If you use ventile cotton, as we often do, ventile cotton per meter is six to seven times more expensive than a cotton we could buy off the shelf from a, a Chinese supplier. You, uh, you know, the old adage of getting what you pay for. 
Now, of course, with a thousand pound jacket, you might actually be getting a really, really good jacket or the guy selling it is making a whacking great profit. Yeah, absolutely. And I think if you are asking a lot of money, you need to prove why you are make, you are asking a lot of money. It's not good enough just to use um, fancy models with a fancy background and some catchy um, text. It's not good. It's not good enough to just expect someone to part with a huge sum of money on purely image alone. It needs some substance behind it. That's what I believe. Definitely. In in closing, do you have any uh, final words of advice or anything you'd like to share? Um, Never go, never don't go into something because you don't know what you're doing. (laughs) Always jump off, always leap. It'll it'll work out in the end. (laughs) I think that is pretty good advice, really. (laughs) Because if you'd bought that house way back, where would you have been today? Yeah. To to say that in a more serious way, I think that often people think you need to acquire knowledge and know what you're doing first and then go out there. It's sort of my my life has never been like that. It's always been, right, let's do this and see what happens. Okay, Gary, this was great. Thanks a lot. and. Pleasure talking. Best of, luck, best of luck with your super expensive but very good jackets. Thank you. Um, bye bye. Bye, Nick. And that was all for this week. Uh, thanks to Gary Newbold of English Utopia for being the guest. And uh, if you'd like to follow um, the podcast, uh, it's Gomology Podcast on Instagram. Uh, you can also find a page with all the previous episodes on my blog, com. if you just look at uh, gomology there. If you'd like to follow me on Instagram, it's welldressedad. And um, if you want to get in touch, it's predictably welldressedad at gmail.com. And thanks for listening. If you'd uh, like to give us a rating or even a comment, that would be great and much appreciated. So see you again next week. Bye.